So far in our series, we have considered God, Yahweh, Rafika from Exodus chapter 15 as the great healer. And we particularly covered with Brother Sim how he worked with the nation of Israel, but also with specific kings. Last week with Brother Lawrence, we focused on Christ and how he healed, how in doing so he was establishing authority, but also emphasizing the need for the people to pursue the ultimate spiritual healing, which has been offered through his great sacrifice. And so tonight we turn to an extension of that work this evening when Jesus himself passed on the commission to the 12, to the 70 and to the apostles when spirit gifts were passed on to the followers so that they may heal others themselves. And we will examine some of those examples. And so our aim, or at least my aim this evening, is to try and establish just some principles ahead of our talk next week where we will consider, hopefully and God willing, who those who lack the spirit gifts ourselves now, what we can learn from the examples of those who have gone before, how we can support and deal with those who are sick around us. And as I was preparing thoughts for this talk, it struck me that there is a, a beautiful lesson that's brought out, that ultimately those who respond to the gospel those are the ones who come to know Christ, whether they were healed or not, like in the first century. And in coming to know Christ, we come to know the Father also. As John 8 says, ye neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And so in turn, it's that knowledge of coming to know Christ and coming to know the Father and that knowledge should lead us to manifest the character of God to those around us. And so we see the teaching of God manifestation. This is our plan then for this evening. Uh, it's in two sections, really. The first part is concerning the Gospels, the 12 and the 70. We want to consider what's mentioned about the healings in the Gospels according uh, to the 12 and the 70. And, and then we will turn to the specific healings in the Acts of the Apostles once Christ has ascended and the Comforter has been sent, as described in John's Gospel. And, and just as Brother Lawrence showed us last week in Matthew chapter 8, how in that chapter Christ would first heal a Jew and then a Gentile, we will see that principle at play again in our thoughts tonight. It picks up the words of Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas wax bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And although our subject is healings, we will see through this evening that the same that same ultimate spiritual healing of receiving the gospel message is to be seen. And that is the greatest healing that we can offer to those around us, the hope of salvation in Christ. So then the 12 and the 70, well, we've just read 
of one of the accounts, of the 12 being sent out. There are generally three sections to consider in relation to this. There's the calling of the 12 themselves. And we read in our chapter tonight, Matthew 10, we've seen the 12 that are called to do that, but there's also references in Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke also record the 12 being sent out, but Matthew again is by far the most detailed with an additional section, verses 16 to 42. And it's only in Luke's gospel that records the sending of the 70. But in that first section, the section that corresponds to verses 1 to 4 of Matthew chapter 10, if we look in Mark chapter 3, you needn't turn there because it's on the screen. We just want to make a small point. And it only says about them preaching in this account. It doesn't say it in verses one to four of Matthew. It says he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him and he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Mark's gospel only records that aspect and to have power to heal sicknesses. And so we will see that these concepts are really working side by side, the preaching of the gospel and the power to heal sickness on the other. And perhaps when we just pause and reflect upon that very simple idea, we recognise other words from scripture that works alone are not enough. They need to sit along the message and the teaching of the gospel. And so if you could, let's let's go to our, our reading. Matthew, we started at Matthew chapter nine. And the reason we started there is because it picks up, doesn't it, immediately in verse 35, the fact that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease. They are the words that we've just seen in Mark's gospel to the 12. It's amazing that we see Jesus once again as the pattern, as the example that others, including the 12 that were to be sent out, should follow in his steps. Everything that he did, he then asked of his disciples And so Matthew chapter nine, if you're there, verse 36 says, but when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. We have a picture there, don't we, of the nation of Israel. If if you don't have a reference, there's a reference to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse five. It's in my margin. And it's in that chapter that speaks to us of the shepherds of Israel, not leading the sheep. And yet we've seen recently in our Bible class series in John chapter 10, how Jesus himself would be the good shepherd, the one who would give his life for the sheep. And then it carries on verse 37 and 38. Thus saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labourers into the harvest. The words just before he sends out the disciples, they were to be labourers in the harvest. That was their role and the purpose. And again, you needn't turn there 
But actually, these words are repeated within the context of sending out the 70. Verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. That's Luke 10 and verse 2, the account of the 70. And so the idea of these being sent out, the 12 and the 70, were to be labourers in the harvest applies to both Jew and Gentile, the 12 and the 70, as we will go on to see. In fact, it's quite similar, isn't it, to the example when Jesus first calls the disciples when they are fishing and calls them to be fishers of men. We have the idea of the similar analogy. And I just wondered as I was preparing, you have that idea of being labourers for the harvest and fishers of men. And I wonder if there was a connection with the multiplicity when we have the feeding of the four and five thousand. It's just a just a thought. And, and so we say it was to Israel, the 12 being sent to the Israel. We, ju- we saw that in our reading, verses five and six. The 12 Jesus sent forth, commanded them, saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there is no such restriction to the sending of the seventy. In fact, we would see a follow up pattern of this in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter one, as Christ was about to ascend. He said, but ye shall receive power and goes on to say, ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in where first? Jerusalem and in Judea, then in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. There was an order. Jew first, then Gentile. In many ways, the work here of the 12 and the 70 was preparation for that work that was to come when Christ would depart. I'm sure many of us have considered this before, but I think it's a lovely idea that's worth sharing. We take a step back and we just view why the sending of 12 and the 70. Well, we know, don't we, that the 12 often speaks of Israel the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 stones in the high priest's breastplate, speaking of the 12 tribes. But we also have this one, and if you would, come with me to Numbers chapter 13. I just think it's a a wonderful picture that we're given in Numbers 13 to see how the 12 spies that were sent out are so similarly shown in the 12 disciples that are sent. What what do we mean? Well, in verses 1 to 16 of Numbers 13, we have listed for us the 12 names of the heads of all the tribes. And just as we had in our reading, we have the 12 disciples all named for us. In verse 20, part of their mission of spying out the land, let's read it, verse 20, And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. A harvest, if you like. Bring of the fruit of the land. Is that not what the twelve were sent out to do to the house of Israel? And yet we know in the narrative of the spies being sent out 
they would not enter the land because of their unbelief. Much like the nation of Israel themselves, they would reject and they would not enter in themselves. But we know, don't we, that the pair, Joshua and Caleb, interesting, it's a pair, isn't it? Because in Mark's gospel, we know that they were sent out two by two. They were the ones that would stand up against the nation. And though they would desire to stone them, they would proclaim the truth and they would enter the land. But as we say, they desired to kill those just as they desired to kill the Messiah. We also see in Revelation, New Jerusalem being 12 gates named after the 12 tribes. Concerning the 70, we know that the sons of Noah numbered 70. They are the nations. And in fact, if you want to take a note of that, Genesis 10 verse 32 makes it really clear. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues in their lands, after their nations. It speaks of nations. In Genesis 46 verse 27, the wider family of Jacob who come down to Egypt, number 70. The wider than Israel. And we know that also Moses organised the nation under 70 assistants in Numbers 11. So if you, you're in Numbers 13, just flick back a couple of pages because there are some awesome types that we see in Numbers and chapter 11. Here is just a selection. There are, I'm sure there are many more, but just a few for you to consider. Numbers 11, verse 11, Moses speaks and says at the end of it, um, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me. And we know that Christ bare our sins in his own body. In verse 14, Moses would say that it is too heavy for me. And we know Christ in the garden would say that he would wish that that cup would be removed. In Numbers uh, 11, verse 16, we see the 70 men of the elders of Israel who are chosen. And we see verse 17, it says, I will come down and talk with thee there and I will take up the spirit which is upon thee and will put it upon them. And we know that Christ would depart from the earth when he ascends. And the comforter, the spirit was sent. And finally, in Numbers 11, verse 25, for our links, we read that Yahweh came down in a cloud. The spirit rested upon them and they prophesied and they did not cease. And we see that worked out at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when the spirit came down. And just one reference, Acts chapter five, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. But of course, I would be remiss not to just mention, of course, Exodus chapter 15 in relation to both the 12 and the 70. Now, we have already seen this and we have already had this as part of our discussion as well. So in verse at the end of verse 26, we see, don't we, the title Yahweh Rafika, I am Yahweh that healeth thee, followed by the location Elim the 12 wells of water and the three score and 10 palm trees. That the site provided a well for each of the 12 tribes, pointing to the spiritual, the water of life, John chapter four. 
Isaiah would predict in of the millennium in Isaiah 12. With joy, ye shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in a picture there, we see, don't we, the 70 palm trees drawing their sustenance from the 12 wells, a type of the future where the saints, the universal rule of Christ in the age to come, will be nourished by the hope of Israel. An amazing figure, that one, in Exodus chapter 15. But let's head back to Matthew, Matthew in chapter 10. Because actually we have a very similar structure that's given in all three accounts of the sending of the twelve. And also we see a similar structure given to the 70. He sends them out, as we've already seen, it's to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we've made mention already that Mark would say that they send them forth by two and two. This really was a a training period, if you like, for the trials ahead when Jesus would depart. I think it's possibly we can deduce that it was a limited use of the spirit gifts before the comforter would be sent. And as we said, that two by two, if you if you haven't got a, a reference against the two by two that are sent out, Ecclesiastes chapter four, it says in there, for two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labour. For if they fall, the other one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. And you can see a practical reason why they would be sent out in pairs two by two. The structure continues that there are instructions again to preach and then power and authority is given. They were to take nothing with them. God was to provide for all their needs. And then there are instructions for entering a city, town or house. Uh, That's when you sort of combine the three accounts. And there are instructions for those who would not receive them. It's only in Matthew's account from verse 16 to 42 that he would go on to speak of the trials that they would face. He says, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, verse 16. And that would come up when he sends out the 70. I think it's verse three. We read it in Luke chapter 10. But the reason that we are here and looking at the 12, again, is just to emphasise this idea that in all three accounts, there is this idea of preaching and healing. Matthew says, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. Mark would say they went out and preached that men should repent. And and that's actually interesting in itself, because we know now that they were sent to Israel. And Israel were encouraged to repent. We've seen also in our recent series on Romans that they thought they had a special relationship, a special inheritance because they were the nation of Israel. And yet they were encouraged to repent also from their ways. And in Luke's gospel, we're told he sent them to preach the kingdom of God to heal the sick. And so they did in verse six of Luke nine. They preached the gospel and healed everywhere. 
again, as a small point, it's interesting to note that we don't ever read that they were to baptize. It was just repentance, as John's baptism was of repentance, but we don't read of a baptism here. Baptism only became a practice in the book of Acts after the Lord Jesus died and rose and many were baptised into the saving name of Christ. Truly, these healings that were performed here were to confirm the message that was being brought. And if you could just turn with me to Mark in chapter 16. Because we read of this, we are told this in Mark chapter 16. The very end, the last couple of verses, Mark chapter 16. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So they preached everywhere and it was confirmed the word with signs. In fact, Hebrews chapter two, verse three to four says a very similar thing. But I think it might go just one little step further, what we want to develop about this. In Matthew's gospel, as we had that reading, it it made a point, didn't it, that said, freely ye have received, freely Give. That's at the end of verse eight. Freely ye have received, freely give. Come with me to James and chapter five. James and chapter five. In verse 14 of James chapter five says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. And again, we just make a reference that we see anointing with oil in Mark chapter six, a reference to anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, another reference that I'd like you to hold on to in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And and it's a tricky passage, isn't it, in James chapter five? I don't think I have a full understanding by any means of what is actually happening in terms of this anointing and the praying. But there are some spiritual lessons that can be brought out. We have the anointing oil. That's what the disciples did in Mark chapter six. I don't think we read of that in many other places, that they anointed them with oil, many that were sick. And here they were. But they were doing that alongside the prayer of faith. And it was that which could save the sick. And following on in verse 16, there was the idea of confession of faults that ye may be healed. And perhaps maybe this was what the disciples could freely give. Maybe it wasn't just the case of they had the spirit gifts. Therefore, what could they give in return? Perhaps we are being shown the idea of the forgiveness of sins also. 
perhaps that's one for us just to think about. And we saw another similar example in our readings this week. I think it was Brother Chris on Tuesday in Luke chapter 7. If you remember, there was that anointing with the head and she wiped uh, or anointed his feet. And Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven because it was her faith. And so we see the ideas tied together. That was in Luke chapter 7, verse 46 to 50. So then we just want to go forward now into Luke's gospel in chapter 10 to look at some points for the 70. Again, we won't develop too much here, but just a couple of points. The 70 has the same structure as we've said, but we see there are a, a few differences which are worth pointing out. We just cast our mind back again to John in chapter 10, that chapter that said Jesus was the good shepherd. And in verse 16 of John chapter 10, it said, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. They speak now of the Gentiles also. In this account in Luke chapter 10, we see that they go out two by two, verse one. In verse two, we've already said the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. The same words as to the twelve. In verse three, that same warning, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And then we see the same structure, carry neither purse nor scrip. They were to seek God's blessing. He was to provide for them. We see also what would happen if they were received into the city from verse eight and what they were to do if they weren't from verse 10 and 11. But the reason we are coming here and having a look at the 70 is for this point. That in both, whether they were received or not, we see it in verse nine. Heal the sick that are therein. Say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But also, verse 10, but into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. And that wasn't mentioned in the sending of the twelve. And yet perhaps there is a, a spiritual lesson again that we can take. That whether when we preach to those around us or if we go on missionary work or whatever it may be, we preach the kingdom of God is nigh. People may reject it. We don't cast our pearls before swine, we know that, but the kingdom of God is something that we can proclaim whether there will be those who respond to it or not. Just a thought there. Um, yes, I did just want to make a mention of this verse. It sort of tied in together with the thoughts we opened with. In Luke 10 and verse 16, he that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. All the way through, we're seeing this chain of Christ to the twelve and back to the Father. And so we need to reflect, don't we, upon our conduct. Do we live according to the principles that Christ has laid out for us? Because he has shown us his Father in his works.
before we turn our attention to the apostles themselves in Acts, I did just want to make a couple of points also about the fact that we have this incident where the disciples could not cure. They clearly had the power, but they could not do it, as recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9 and Luke 9. In fact, in the Gospels, we don't really read of any specific healings of the disciples at all. We know that in Luke chapter 10, the 70 returned with great joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. So they clearly possessed the power. And I'm prepared to be corrected, but I, as I said, I can't think of any specific examples within the Gospels of the disciples uh, or reading of them performing a healing or a miracle, just these verses that say they could. And it sort of brought my mind a little bit to Peter when he walked on water. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 14, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith. And so as we have a quick look now at the account, I'd like us to turn to Mark chapter 9, the gospel there, of the recording of where they couldn't. We will see that there is a lack of faith and belief also. This was something that the disciples would have to work on with the Lord Jesus Christ while he was there to learn from the master. We read in all three accounts, it's very clear to us, they brought this man's child and they could not cure him. All three accounts make that very clear. And so Jesus says in verse 19 of Mark chapter 9, he answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, similar to O thou of little faith. How long shall I be with you? And you wonder, was he speaking to the whole multitude, the nation of Israel? Was it a reference to the disciples at this time? How long shall I be with you? It sort of speaks, doesn't it, of the disciples, knowing that he would depart from them. How long shall I suffer you? And in fact, this idea of belief is brought out later on because the father, Jesus speaks to him. and But the father says first, but if thou canst do anything, this is verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus' reply was, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. This was all about belief and faith. And isn't that a lesson for us? Something that we too should pray for in our lives all the time. Help thou mine unbelief. We need strengthening and encouraging all the time, one with another, of our unbelief, that we may be strengthened in the faith that we possess while we await the Lord Jesus to return. And actually, if you would, just then flick back to Mark's gospel, who then says... A further interesting point, because the disciples come to him afterwards and they say, why could not we cast him out? It's both in Matthew and Mark, but it's Matthew that would go on to say, 
in verse 20, because of your unbelief, verse 20, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And we have the mountains, don't we? The mountain, an obstacle of the sin that can easily beset us, an obstacle that we need to remove in our own lives, to remove those mountains, those obstacles, to remove the sin that is in our lives. We need to remove that. And we can only do that ourselves through prayer, through approaching unto our Father. You don't, you needn't turn to it, but there's a similar passage again, and I'm sorry that I'm flicking in between passages, but it's in Mark chapter 11, and it says, Jesus saith unto them, have faith in God. Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them. Verse 25 of Mark 11. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye ought against any. And so for us, brethren and sisters, we need to remove those obstacles of sin in our own life. And we can only do that by forgiving ourselves that we forgive others as we pray the Father will forgive us. And perhaps this is all tied in with the disciples who could not cure at this time. It was their faith. They did not have faith at this time. And yet we know they were of great faith. We will see it later, won't we? And so the comforter was then sent. Um, I put those references up on the screen, but I'm conscious that we need to sort of get going a little bit. Um, those of you who were listening to the one day conference talks on on Saturday may have heard brother, brother Matt Bain speak about the comforter being sent and how the comforter was sent to guide and to direct the apostles when it was sent. It was sent as a guide. It was sent to testify of Christ. And that they were to bear witness. It was to bear witness of him. And there is a lesson for us again, isn't there? That we are in Christ's absence too. We don't possess the spirit gifts as they did, but we do have the complete word. And just as they were required to carefully be guided by the spirit in their preaching, we know that we need to be directed in our own lives by our knowledge and our understanding of God's word. And we can only do that by reading of it, meditating on it, and applying the principles that we see in the word. And so let's turn to Acts now. Let's go into the book of Acts. We've already seen the verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the pattern that there would be the principle of going to Israel first, and then to the wider Samaria and then the Gentiles. And this is largely seen through the Apostle Peter, covering roughly verses chapters one to nine. I know this varies a little bit. And then through Paul to the Gentiles between chapters 14 and 28. And they did exactly what 
the spirit or the comforter was sent to witness the Lord Jesus Christ. So many occasions as we go through the first chapters of Acts, we see that they were to witness. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, just one example. And they killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And that is one of many references that they were to be the witnesses now of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That was the gospel that they would come to preach. The difference, of course, now was that now Christ had ascended after his resurrection. They preached not only repentance, but baptism for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus. And we know that because of the end of Acts chapter 2. That's what they were baptising those who had been converted into. When we consider then the specifics and the specific healings in the book of Acts, I think there may be more, but generally speaking, there are three recorded by Peter and four, again, possibly more, by Paul. And there is a mirroring, isn't there, of those accounts. We know that Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 heal the lame man. And in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas would do the same thing. They both would raise uh, one back to life. And so there are clear links we also know, don't we, that the spirit was, uh, I, I don't say stronger, but we know that the comforter could heal just by a shadow and just by a handkerchief. We know, we know that from Acts chapter five. Uh, we just read, I might just read Acts chapter five now. It says in verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. They truly could heal and carry out these healings now at this time. But we just want to focus in our remaining time on one of the healings in Acts and chapter 3. It's probably because it's the first, but we have so much information recorded to us in the fact that there is the healing of the lame man. And then we have words that accompany, accompany it, confirmed with signs following. So Acts and chapter three, let's have a look at what takes place in this account. We know from verse four, don't we, that Peter fastens his eyes upon that lame man who is in the temple. <clears throat> And then he says in verse five, he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I give, have, I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So we see the outworking of the miracle in the name of Jesus Christ. The response, verse eight, and he leaping up, stood and walked and entered into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. The healing has taken place and it's hard to miss the emphasis on his reaction. He was leaping. He was walking. 
he was praising God. It reminds us of the words of Isaiah chapter 35. They are familiar words to us. It's a reflection of that great healing that will take place in the future, where the lame are categorised as being healed, Isaiah 35, as part of that great time to come in the future age. It says, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of fearful heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart. Isaiah chapter 35, the lame will leap as an heart. This is exactly what takes place in the miracle in Acts 3. And in Acts 14, we read of it happening also with Paul. The healing that takes place is immediate. And that's the power of the miracle. When we recover from an injury, it can take time, a long process. This was instantaneous. He leaps, he walks and he praises God. This miracle was transformative. It was whole. It was complete. It was immediate. And that is what being in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, that can be to us and our nature, that we can be cleansed from the sin that so easily besets us. We can be cleansed to a new way of life in that time described in Isaiah 35. But we have to also emphasise verses 12 to 26 of Acts 3 is the message, the gospel that was preached. And so whereas one may have been converted from the natural miracle of healing, now many more had the potential to be healed by coming to an understanding of Peter's words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, doesn't he, verse 12 of chapter 3. Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, at the miracle? Or why look ye so earnestly, that word earnestly is the same word as fastening in verse 4, as though our own power or holiness we have made this man to walk. Peter begins, doesn't he, by emphasising the point that it was not their own strength that this miracle was performed. But what Peter would go on to show is that the power first came from God, who is titled the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, verse 13, the one who would glorify his son. And it was in his name. The expression used throughout chapters three and four, that they were able to perform the miracles. He shows it was God. God was the one who would glorify his son. And so we have a really interesting quotation that's picked up there. I think it's a quotation that's taken from Exodus in chapter three. The occasion where Moses goes and speaks to Yahweh and says, oh, what, what name shall I reveal thee to the nation as? And the response is, thou shalt say unto them or unto the children of Israel. And that's interesting. It's to the children of Israel. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. It's in that chapter that God would explain to Moses his memorial name. Of course, it was a reminder to the men of Israel that it was God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Israel, 
the one who would bring that nation out of the affliction of Egypt. They too were once metaphorically and physically crippled and lame in the land of Egypt. But God brought them out of their affliction. We too were once crippled by sin, but it's the same God who has glorified his son from the grave and raised him up that we too can be healed from our affliction also. <clears throat> we see then, don't we, this emphasis about doing so in the name. I'll read some out quickly. Uh, maybe you've got them penciled in, but I just found it really interesting to colour these in in my Bible. This idea of the name, they were doing all in the name of Jesus. You see it in chapter three, verse six. You see it twice in verse 16. And as you go on into chapter four, you see it in verse seven. By what name have you done this? In verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 12, there is none other name under heaven. Verse 17, henceforth to no man in this name, not to speak at all, to teach in the name of Jesus. And verse 30, and these signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child, Jesus. There is such a clear emphasis that all they were doing now with the spirit was in the name of Jesus. Late, later on, we know that Paul would say also in Acts 16, when he healed the damsel, it was done in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm aware we are really running close to the end of our time together, and I'm sure many of you would wish me to... Uh, finish right now but just a couple more points if you would if you would allow me C come with me to John and chapter 10 come with me to John chapter 10 because in John chapter 10 we read a fascinating little account that links to the one here in Acts chapter 3 we see verse 23 of John chapter 10, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch in exactly the same place as Peter healed this lame man and this speech is being performed. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, verse 25, when they say, if thou be the Christ, tell us. He says, I told you, ye believe not the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give eternal life unto them, eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of the hand. My Father, which gave them, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. An interesting passage that ties a few of our thoughts that we've brought out tonight. The sheep, they would hear his voice. They would follow him. The result being eternal life. And this point is developed and made more interesting, perhaps, when we turn to John chapter 21. When Peter is asked, lovest thou me? And what did Jesus then tell Peter to do? He tells him to feed my sheep. And that is exactly 
what Peter was now doing, particularly as we read of it here in Acts chapter three and, and chapter four. This passage shows us that Jesus and his father were one in purpose. He performed works in his father's name, and now the disciples were doing so in the name of Jesus and were witnessing to him. In essence, they were doing also in the father's name because he and Christ were one. And so let us conclude on this point, brothers and sisters. We can take great exhortation for ourselves that we too are called to be witnesses of Christ. We, we say that we should strive to follow the example of the Lord Jesus and to show his character to those around us. But he followed his father and we too are called to follow God's character and to manifest his character to those round about us. That when we do go and preach, when we speak to those around us, we will declare that the kingdom of God is coming nigh. That we can reveal that in Jesus and in Christ, in his name, there is the power to be healed and saved. And we look forward, don't we, brothers and sisters, to that time of Isaiah chapter 35, when we shall be healed, when the lame shall leap like an heart. And we hope and pray that we shall be with him in that time. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.